Hello and welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. This podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Reform Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And uh, today we have a, a topic that we'll be diving into that is, is hopefully going to bless your celebration of Advent as you prepare hmm. for the birth of Christ and celebrating Christmas Day. Also longing for the return of Jesus to make everything new. And um, maybe not the topic that you think will, will be so helpful in preparing you to celebrate Jesus' birth, but Um, But a topic that I think, as pastors, sometimes we can assume people know more about than what they actually do. And we even realized that as we went about preparing for this this episode, that there's a lot that we still have to learn about this time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Right now, we are preaching through Malachi at... Almond Valley, and and that's, of course, the last book of the Old Testament, Um, not just in the last book in the canon of the Old Testament, but it's also the last book chronologically of the Old Testament as well, where uh, about 400 years before Jesus was born, Malachi prophesied in Judah and uh, gave great promises, of course, for God's faithfulness, but that's 400 years from his prophecy into um, the birth of Jesus, the ministry of John the Baptist, which prepares the way for Christ. And so sometimes we need a refresher on all that happens (laughs) in those 400 years because Israel is a very different place when Jesus comes onto the scene. Yeah, it's easy for us to just think that uh, Malachi gives his prophecy and then things remain pretty much static for the next 400 years, although very quiet, Mm -hmm. there's no prophecy, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene. And that's problematic once we actually pick up the New Testament and begin to read, because things will be very confusing for us if that is our understanding of those 400 years. Uh, We will see these different parties that are not really explained so much as they are just assumed that we and we know what they mean. Uh, there's the different groups, which we'll get into in this episode, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes, and even those who are called the Zealots. And there, there's now Roman authority. Roman authority, the, the Romans weren't in the yeah. picture uh, <laughs> by the time of Malachi's prophecies. And so <clears throat> how, how did that happen? What was the transition of power uh, for this, this region of the world known today commonly as Palestine? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these are questions that we need to have some sort of general understanding of. Now, I'll, I'll say that as we decided to to do an episode on this. I don't think Mark and I are really the world's leading experts on intertestamental uh, studies. That is correct. (laughs) We we know some of the basics. We know enough to have this episode on it, but uh, we're, we're definitely not the ones who have all the working knowledge of it. We, we have just sort of, at least for me, I speak for myself, I can I can say that I have just sort of a kind of a shadowy understanding of the main uh, events that took mm-hmm. place, the main groups that were in, in power, uh, and sort of the story of the Jews during this time period. And so 
our hope today is to sort of give you these major plot points so that you can begin to read the New Testament uh, with more understanding and so that you will benefit from it more positively. Yeah, maybe we could summarize this episode in saying, we did the homework so you don't have to. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we read uh, the Wikipedia pages <laughs> and similar sort of things, study yeah. Bible notes and so on so that you don't have to. Right, and... Uh, no, that's, that's a great reminder for people. We, we are not the world's foremost authorities on this. Um, but yet we are pastors who yeah. have gone to seminary. And so um, I, I think that, that maybe even with that disclaimer, I, I would add, we do see as the people who study the Bible and the New Testament um, that these are pretty important matters of, of mm. historic developments during the time in between um the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, that um, I would say you're going to be okay reading the Bible if you don't have all of this background knowledge. There is perspicuity in Scripture. That's a word that means somebody yeah. who picks up the Bible um, and is filled with the Spirit can have understanding of um, all that you need to know for life and godliness just from reading the Bible. So we don't want to oversell this episode as if you don't <laughs> yeah. understand nothing about the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus if you don't go to Israel and if you don't know about the Hasmonean period and the <laughs> Maccabean revolt. Um, sometimes scholars can oversell things so much that they make people insecure about their knowledge. We don't want to do that. Um, but we do also want to say um, there's a little bit of of homework that can be done, a little bit more of understanding, so that we would more greatly appreciate um, the world in which Jesus lived, the ministry context that he served in, um, what is happening with the Jewish people particularly in that day. And um, maybe a little bit of a teaser also is that next week we are going to do an episode on Hanukkah, um, which arises in this intertestamental period as well. So. Uh, we'll ask the question basically next week, how should a Christian think of Hanukkah? Uh, what are the historic roots, um, the, the theological roots of the celebration of Hanukkah? And, um, and we'll think about that next week um, because it has a lot to do with this actually, this topic as well of the intertestamental period. And when we say intertestamental, uh, we just mean this period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of uh, the New Testament, essentially the birth of Jesus. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up the perspicuity of Scripture, mm -hmm. and I totally agree. And I, I think that doing studies like this, where we we pick up some of the history along the way, that is not itself included in Scripture, is part of how we can believe the perspicuity of Scripture, because yeah, maybe the Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know about the scenes, but that doesn't mean we can't use good and necessary reason to go and read other sources on sort of picking up who are the Essenes or who were the Sadducees. Uh, we can glean really important things from Scripture on these groups, uh, but it's good to do these sorts of studies as well where we look at history, and it's it's possible for the human mind to understand these things. And yeah. so the perspicuity of Scripture, uh, I think, also encourages us. That doctrine encourages us to do exactly what we're hoping to do today mm -hmm. and sort of looking at some extra-biblical uh, resources so that we can pick up the story along the way. And so I think we should start with... Uh, the picking up where the new or where the old testament leaves off and so if you know your old testament timeline which we won't recount all the way for you uh, but it ends 
uh, with the post-exilic period. So the, the, the Jews, uh, the northern and southern kingdoms are in exile, and they slowly begin to trickle back uh, in the 6th century BC under King Cyrus, the Persian king. And this is a time that is recounted uh, in the Old Testament in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah which in some ways are considered one book, mm -hmm. and the people return, they rebuild the temple, and this is known as the second, the beginning of the second temple period. That was really an important term for you to know. Mm -hmm. The second temple Judaism is something that is talked a lot about in the scholarly world because second temple Judaism exists from that point in time, from the rebuilding of the temple up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, uh, shortly after uh, Christ's ascension. And so... King Cyrus allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. They return, they rebuild the temple. Uh, it's a time of great rejoicing, but also of weeping. The, the glory of the temple is not the same as the temple that was uh, that was put in place by by Solomon. And so there's there's great joy. There's also great sadness, and they realize also that, that their political governance is not, they're not independent. They're not an independent state. They are still uh, looked after uh, by by the Persian uh, kingdom and by King Cyrus himself. And so there's a measure of freedom. There's a measure of joy, but things are not all that they should be. And they are, they're definitely not all that they once were. And so that is where the story will pick up today uh, into the next uh, few periods uh, leading up to the time of Christ. So after the Persian period, Mark, mm -hmm. how would you describe the next period? So it, even during that Persian period, uh, there is there's an issue that really arises that is, is so clearly in the New Testament and, and really in the end of the Old Testament as well. And, and that's this huge question of how should the Jews relate to their governors? <laughs> um, and, and that's... That's basically the question for these 400 yeah. years. Um, a, in the, in, in, the in the po in the Second Temple period, the post um, Old Testament period, that is the ultimate question, um, and, and it has a theological nature to it. What is the Lord doing? Um, yeah. How could the Lord allow for Israel not to have? Um, a, a glorious king, a, a yeah. righteous king, um, a priestly class that that had um, kind of the authority and you would almost <laughs> say autonomy and, and uh, um, ability to to teach openly. Um, and there are, are different times in Israel's history where that is not allowed in certain ways, particularly when they're persecuted um, most severely under um, somebody like Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, <laughs> And so this question is still there when Jesus comes onto the scene, um, when Herod, you know, even when Jesus is born, um, seeing that there's a threat to his authority and, and the slaughter of the innocents happens in, in Bethlehem as a result of that. Yeah. Um, that is the question that, that hangs over Israel like a black cloud, is how should these Jewish people relate to outside authorities, Gentile authorities? Um, and... The, the place that that really ramps up in a lot of ways is when Alexander the Great does his conquest um, all the way from um, Greece towards what is now India, um, where hmm. he, he sweeps through um, the Eastern Mediterranean world, and um, he not only 
achieves great military victories, but in his mm. wake, he, he's leaving very intentionally Greek culture. And yeah. um, if you know the name of Greece today that Greek people use, it's Hellas. Um, so if you were to go to Greece, they don't call it Greece in Greece. <laughs> they call it Hellas. Uh, in the same way that they don't I did call not it, know that actually they don't call it Germany in in Germany they call it Deutschland yeah. um, or España or um, you know there's different Japan is not called Japan in Japan mm -hmm. um, I believe it's Nihon um, and so in Greece even still today it's called Hellas and uh, part of the reason that that I even bring that up is is that Alexander the Great Hellenizes. Um, the the Eastern Mediterranean world, and over time that spreads culturally to the Western Mediterranean in a lot of ways, particularly through the conquests of Julius Caesar later on in um, in Gaul and even all the way up to England. Uh, Julius hmm. Caesar fought battles near Dover, England. Um, yeah. And, and so um, this Hellenization, this um, bringing of Greek philosophy and Greek culture is, is spreading uh, really through the conquest of Alexander the Great, and that also includes uh, the Jewish world, where even in Jesus' day, people, the lingua franca would have been Greek. Uh, and, and the big reason is the Hellenization that happened under Alexander the Great. Yeah, and from what I understand during this period as well, uh, though Alexander was intent on Hellenizing his conquered realms, there was still a, a, a little bit of leeway for the, each of these groups to retain uh, more or less some of their own peace, and they could retain some of their culture uh, as they went. And so the Jews weren't really threatened too much. They kind of got along, and they they recognized him as, as the king that he was or the emperor that he was. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of threat to their identity as a mm -hmm. people. They were allowed still to retain their worship. They were considered strange and weird, and that really lasted all the way past the time of Christ. Uh, they were seen as these this unique people group uh, with one God. Their monotheism right. was very strange right. to, to the Greek and, and Roman uh, yeah. polytheism. And so for the most part, they were, during the, the early parts of the, what we might call the Hellenistic period under Alexander the Great, things were more or less okay. But as time went on, there the, the Hellenistic or the Alexandrian empire sort of fragments, mm -hmm. and this is where things can get a little bit convoluted, but we could say that there was the next leadership uh, rule or the reign coming from the Ptolemaic Empire, which would have extended up from Egypt. So you can sort of think of uh, Moses and the people wandering up from Egypt up to uh, the, 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 the up, to, up through Palestine, excuse me. Mm -hmm. You could think of that sort of journey, and that's about where the, the Ptolemaic Empire would have uh, had its reign. So up from Egypt, up through Jerusalem and Judea. And then eventually this shifts to the Seleucid Empire, which has its power base north of Jerusalem uh, in, in the Syrian region. And that their, their power extended down through Jerusalem. And this, this happens in about 198 B.C., so about 200 years before Christ and before his birth. And so it's during this period that things begin to get really dicey for the Jews. Their their whole religion and identity now becomes threatened. The Seleucid Empire really begins to push Hellenization uh, to the max. And so mm -hmm. they really don't want anyone uh, 
uh, going against uh, their sort of ways, their culture, their religious beliefs, and so they begin to restrict worship in the temple. And this goes actually so far uh, to the point where one of the leaders, who we'll look at in a minute, uh, institutes pagan worship in the temple of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And this triggers something in the Jews during this period. This is seen as something that is highly sacrilegious, and it's, it's intolerable in the highest degree, and so something must be done. And so this happens uh, in about the 160s BC, and so... Mm-hmm. What happens next from this point in time, Mark? This is where things really get get really interesting in our story. Yeah, um, just a great description that you just gave of how there was less a time of less tolerance for Jewish religious practices, Jewish theology, particularly monotheism. Hmm. Um, kosh, the keeping of kosher laws in yeah. Israel um, was was an issue, and so there was a. Uh, a tyrannical, we could say, uh, ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and um, he uh, he realized he wanted to get get at these rebellious Jewish people, and so he discovered that uh, their hmm. kosher laws. And um, I'll just read something that the the ancient historian Diodorus wrote, and he was he was somebody who lived in the time of of this 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 terrible thing, he wrote that Antiochus sacrificed a pig at the image of Moses and at the altar of God that stood in the outward court. This is in the temple in Jerusalem. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes brings a pig in to sacrifice on that altar. An unclean animal. Um, And and sort of the the prime example of the unclean animal. And not only does he sacrifice the pig, but then sprinkles... um, the, the temple with the blood of the sacrifice, um, and he commanded likewise to be done to the holy texts that the Jews um, would, would read, um, essentially the Old Testament scriptures, that they would be sprinkled with pig's blood uh, by which they were... Um, uh, so uh, Antiochus Epiphanes thought that the Jewish scriptures were taught, or were teaching the Jews to hate all other nations, and so therefore wanted to, to show his authority essentially over the these holy texts by um desecrating them um and so there's there's pig's blood all over the place and he even put out the lamp which burns continually in the temple as well and uh, lastly he forced the high priest and the other jews to eat pig's flesh to eat pork um and so this triggered Obviously, a very strong reaction from the Jewish people that turned into what is now known as the Maccabean Revolt. <laughs> and so um, a family, the Maccabees, uh, of actually very good mini- uh, m- <laughs> sorry, military leaders, <laughs> um, Judas Maccabeus, Simon Maccabeus, um, they, uh, they sort of rallied this grassroots guerrilla warfare force <laughs> against um, their... Uh, their oppressors, the Seleucid oppressors, and and achieved uh, a short-lived but very glorious independence for the Jewish people um, as as they kind of took to warfare in the hills surrounding um, Jerusalem and Israel, and uh, and did earn independence. And so, um, one of the the great moments of of the Maccabean revolt is the entrance into Jerusalem for. The, the new priests, the, the faithful priests, those who are, are going to, 
to mm. follow God's word and, and to cleanse the temple. Um, and, and people were waving palm branches, which um, definitely would make the Christian think of Palm Sunday. Um, <laughs> palm Sunday was very much echoing the entrance of the Jews back into Jerusalem during the Maccabean Revolt. So hmm. um, this event, um, just before we recorded our episode, I, uh, we were talking about how this was in a lot of ways like um, the 9-11 of, of Zach and my generation, where it, it's this, this event that, that ca has caused so much change um, hmm. politically, culturally, um, uh, just in the way that that we think of America's relationship to the world has changed a lot since 9/11 right. as a result of of the terrorist attacks on those days um, the the desecration of the temple under Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes was that kind of event for not just one generation of Jewish people but but still had reverberations into Jesus day as, hmm. as people were very suspicious and skeptical of any uh, Gentile authority, um, possibly being another Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah, it's really hard for us to uh, get our heads around how important that event would have been for the Jewish people in a bad way. How yeah. how psychologically damaging it would have been to them traumatic. collectively as a nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very traumatic. Yeah. Uh, it it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. Okay, they had a temple. They some guy came in and put pig's blood on things just as oh, just in order to make them angry and to get them back uh, and to really establish his dominance over them. Okay, shouldn't they have just forgiven him and and moved on? But for the Jewish people of this time period, not only were they already feeling pretty beleaguered and mm -hmm. oppressed, but their their temple was their soul connection to the Lord, to, to the to the God of their forefathers. Uh, it was sort of the identity marking feature of their whole nation. It marked them out as God's people. And the temple worship would have been the way of, of doing worship. Um, it, w it was sort of how they had a connection to the God of Israel. Uh, and so it was a huge deal to them. In some ways, like, maybe we, it's it's not even that great of a connection, but it would be somewhat similar to what we saw in the Capitol riots, uh, you could say, where it was sort of desecrating to a mm. national symbol. And that, that will be something that is burned into our memories as people living in the 21st century in the United States of America. And so it's somewhere similar to this, uh, but on a much more spiritual and theological level. And so this, of course, leads to a great revolt. And another interesting point that you make here is that this then colors in, in some ways, uh, the Jewish fear of, or you can even say uh, their, their hatred towards or their dislike of Gentile people, people who are unclean. It's because they've had a, this horrible experience now with a Gentile ruler coming in and doing this to them, mm -hmm. uh, which would have felt very... Uh, racially motivated in some ways. Maybe they wouldn't have thought of it in quite the same categories as we would today, but it definitely would have contributed to an us versus them mentality th yeah. that these people then had. And we see that in the New Testament. That's one of the common problems in the early churches as the gospel is spreading, seeing the integration of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, because Jewish Christians uh, almost can't help but be suspicious of their Gentile brothers and sisters. And so knowing a little bit of this history really helps uh, 
fill in some of the color of the New Testament. And it, it would also help people to know that the Jews of the Maccabean Revolt period were not all on board with this revolution. There <laughs> were many who would call for, hey, just get along with, um, yeah, with Antiochus with Epiphanes. Do what he says you should do. Um, <laughs> go with the flow. Uh, of course, they wouldn't use that term, but... Um, like, for example, um, Antiochus Epiphanes installed essentially a puppet, a, a puppet high priest named Menelaus, <laughs> and um, Menelaus was, was not particularly devoted to um, the, the Jewish customs. Um, he, he was, again, more of a puppet of, of who their political authorities wanted him to be, and there would have been a lot of people who would have gone along with that. Yeah. And, and so... Think of the tax collector in the New Testament in Jesus' day, and the the, ta the Jewish tax collector was regarded as that type of person, yeah. somebody who is appeasing um, the the Roman authorities, the the Gentile authorities. Um, maybe has even culturally assimilated in some ways to yeah. this Hellenization, and um, instead of drawing those those thick boundaries between Jewish culture, Jewish identity, um, Jewish practices, and um, the the foreign uh, influences of the Gentiles, the, the, the Hellenizers. So um, even as we describe this, hopefully people can get a little bit more of a sense for the the culture in into which Jesus was hmm. born, where it was it was a powder keg in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, there were various Messiah figures who had risen up even between the Maccabean era and Jesus' day, and uh, in a lot of cases they were just snuffed out very unceremoniously because um, the, these political authorities were powerful and <laughs> Israel was not. Um, yeah. um, militarily speaking or politically speaking in this in this time period between the Maccabees and the beginning of the New Testament. Yeah, and the Maccabean Revolt didn't just happen all at once. It really happens in the 160s, starting in about 167 uh, to about 160. But then even even after that, there's kind of a, a uh, back and forth of power, and it's really not until about 140 BC that independence is really fully won hmm. and so that independence then lasts for about 80 more years or so so just to back up we've seen the Persian period starting in King with King Cyrus that begins in f about 539 BC maybe you're writing this down so you can <laughs> track the timeline and then there's what we've characterized as the Hellenistic period that starts in 331 and goes to about 164. And at the end of that Hellenistic period is the Seleucid Empire, which really is what triggers then the, the Hasmonean, or what's also known as the Maccabean period, with the Maccabean Revolt. And that lasts until about 63 BC. And that is this, this is then the beginning of the Roman period. And this is the period in which the New Testament takes off. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, what happens here in the Roman period? How does it uh, sort of begin? The Romans were organizers, and not only that, but that was seen in their military style, and their great military successes were in part because of the amazing organization, not just of the army its, itself, but also the organization of the, um, the supply lines, even something as simple as road building and, um, and farming and 
hmm. coordinating all of the the supplies that need to to go into supporting an army um, and so um, the reason that I bring that up is is the Romans basically saw victory after victory over all kinds of, of people hmm. groups out west just as I said under Julius Caesar and it was it was in the century before Jesus was born that um, that Julius Caesar had his great victories and that hmm. the Roman Empire really became a thing and so yeah. even the name Caesar uh, uh, took on the connotation of the emperor um, af in the stead of Julius mm. Caesar, who was really the first great Roman emperor. And, um, and as Caesar is experiencing all of these victories, Rome is, is doing um, what we could say a, a good job of organizing their, <laughs> their territories. Um, yeah. They are uh, essentially becoming almost like a little bit more of a modern nation state. Yeah. Um, now, a historian would disagree with that for a lot of different reasons, but maybe just for the sake of shortening our conversation, we can think <laughs> of um, a huge nation that basically encompasses the Mediterranean world yeah. and, and goes outward a, a little bit towards the east as well and towards the north, towards um, places like southern Germany. Um, and so uh, that would include, of course, Israel, where... Uh, even in the Bible, everybody remembers that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so Caesar Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And um, even in that reference, you can see they're an organized yeah. empire. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and because they, they want to take a <laughs> census, they want to know who is, is in the empire. They want to, of course, do that for the purposes of receiving taxes and um, generally speaking, um, in this era, th with Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus, there was quite a bit of leniency towards the local worship practices, at least from the very top levels down. Now, that won't be the case with mm. Nero and Caligula and some of the, um, the Caesars that would follow after and be mm. uh, terrible persecutors of the church. But um, in this day, uh, these Roman authorities set up local governors, just like what Herod was in, um, in Palestine and what Pontius mm -hmm. Pilate would, would later be as well. And, um, and, and there's a hierarchy a at this time. And so yeah. even still, they, they have real authority. They make uh, a tax system. And there is still this question of how the Jews are going to respond, um, even though they're given authority in the temple, for example, to worship like they want to. Um, mm -hmm. In Jesus' day, that is the case. Um, there's there's still this unease with the Gentile um, authorities uh, and powers that are over them. Yeah, so there's tension here, obviously, yeah. building. Um, from what I understand, it sounds to me like the Maccabean period ends with some division amongst the different uh, leaders of the Maccabean uh Rain, mm -hmm. different family members, and so they kind of ask for Rome to come in, but they, they don't really want Rome to have that much authority, but once Rome comes in, they come in, and they begin to have this authority, and so as the years go by from about 63 BC up until the time of Christ, uh, there's, there's building tension, mm -hmm. such to the extent that there is a lot of wondering about when the Roman oppressors will be overthrown once again. Maybe there's 
there's thoughts that there will be another revolt, another time where uh, Jew, Jewish uh, leaders will start a rebellion and once again r return towards uh, independence. And this, this would be seen of obviously as the ideal. It wouldn't have been ideal for the Jews to, to have some sort of uh, religious freedom without true uh, political freedom as well. Mm -hmm. And so... This is where there's there, we've many of you, many of our listeners have probably heard pastors talk about uh, there were there was lots of wonderings and, and and rumors about who was going to come and overthrow the Roman overlords. Uh, they thought the Messiah would have come and and done something militarily to to get them free, and so it's in. This time period, especially the Maccabean time period leading into the Roman time period, uh, that there's a sort of a fragmentation, you might say, of the different groups of, of Jews. We're asking this question of how do we relate to, to those who are in power over us. And so there's four main groups that we are introduced to in the New Testament that we come into contact with that sort of have their different distinctives, we might say. Mm -hmm. And so the first two are the ones we hear of quite a bit, and they're the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Uh, these leaders we see uh, for different reasons playing different parts in the, in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. The Pharisees, as, as we know, are those who are very attentive to the law, attentive to the traditions of the Jews that have been passed down from their beginnings, and they are the ones who are committed towards making sure that the ethical vision of, of Judaism is followed to a T, uh, so much so that they are often uh, adding more laws in some ways on, and so that they, they can protect the people from disobeying the law. Mm -hmm. And so we, when we think of Phariseeism today, we think of, we think of legalism. Now, maybe this is going a little bit too far and not being quite fair to them. It wasn't as though they d didn't believe that God was gracious or anything like that. And not every Pharisee was pure evil. There were right, good Pharisees, right, right. even in Jesus' day, there were good ones. Too. Yeah, we can yeah. see the good in what they're trying to do and trying to uphold the moral law uh, uh, and the religious law in general, the ceremonial law and all of it uh, in their own day. And then there's the Sadducees, when we've all heard the sort of little joke that they were sad, you see, because <laughs> they did not believe in the resurrection. This group of Jews uh, only held to the first five books of the Bible and did not see the rest of what we know today as the Old Testament as a part of the canon. And so because of that, uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's one of the main things that we come into contact with in the New Testament uh, because there was a lot of wondering about whether or not a resurrection was going to, to happen. And so we see the Sadducees here. Both of these groups uh, were quite influential, uh, but the Pharisees, I think, would have had more more power. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. Would that be oh, right? Yeah. That's my understanding, at least. A lot of uh, social clout. In, yeah. Uh, like, they were the most impressive. Pharisees were not priests. Sometimes people get confused about that. Hmm. Pharisees had full-time jobs, but they also had the full-time sort of extra responsibility of being a Pharisee, um, of, of being kind of a watcher, uh, somebody who would know the law, study the hmm. law really well. It was... Um, it would be almost as if 
you and Isaac had full-time jobs, and we also were full-time at yeah. the church and doing our ministry, there, there would be, people would be kind of impressed by that. Yeah, and and they would say, "Wow, they're really devoted to what the Lord wants <laughs> to do in the community," and um, that was the reputation of the Pharisees. Uh, they were so impressive. Yeah, and uh, they liked being impressive too. In a lot of <laughs> cases, Jesus yeah. confronts them for that. Uh, but even as we think about these responses to the uh, the problem of Gentile authority, I think we can see parallels in all of these with people today. Oh, um, yeah. And so if somebody says um, America is not the great nation culturally, influentially as it once was, hmm. and so um, they would say, how are we going to solve that, that problem? Well, some people would say we got to be all about the law, law and order. You know, yeah. that, that's the Pharisee response. Tighten things up. Uh, exactly. Um, yeah. Add laws upon laws, and we're going to legislate our way out of this. Um, the another response could be the the more Sadducean response, and just be skeptical and, and kind of give up on mm-hmm. on there being a massive transformation in culture. The Sadducees had kind of been resolved mm-hmm. to that. Uh, Jesus' great rebuke of the Sadducees that mm-hmm. um, that I remember from from preaching on it in the Gospel of Mark is is where um, they, they try to test him. And, and Jesus' response is, uh, your problem is that you believe, you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Hmm. And so they, like you said, they only accept the first five books of the Bible. And so they don't know the full word of God that, yeah. that he had handed down through the prophets. And neither do they believe in the power of God. And so hmm. they do that by rejecting the, the resurrection specifically. Yeah. But the reason they reject the resurrection is they don't believe that God could do that kind of thing in the world. Hmm. And there's a lot of people who take that attitude, maybe even in the church towards God. They don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And so Hmm. it turns into cynicism, skepticism, and um, they they might just kind of give up. Um, Honestly, I think of the mainline church as as having some of these yeah. Sadducean errors where they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It, um, gathering for worship <laughs> becomes really more about uh, routines and rituals that are helpful yeah. for, for us in a kind of spiritual, moral uh, way. But is somebody really going to be healed yeah. by the power of God? Is, is God going to bring revival to America? <laughs> um, the Sadducean modern person would say, no, probably not. I mean, that, that's probably not going to happen. So, um, so there's those two that Jesus addresses mainly, but then alongside you have hmm. uh, the zealots, and that term is still in common <laughs> vocabularies of people because uh, it, uh, they are filled with zeal. That's where the, the mm-hmm. core of the word zealot comes from. And these would be those who uh, those who would have stormed the Capitol building on January 6th. Um, <laughs> yeah. th- those could be certainly referred to as zealots. These are the people who say, we've got a problem, and we're going to solve it through force. Uh, yeah. We're going to take on these authorities, uh, even if the odds are against us, come what may, we just have to, to take up our arms and, and do something about it. And so that would have yeah. included one of Jesus' disciples, of course, famously Simon the Zealot. Mm-hmm. Um, who would have been serving Christ alongside Matthew, the tax collector, um, <laughs> which is a, is a fascinating little study in Christian community. Um, yeah. And uh, this was a very recent development in 
the sectarian responses to the mm. Gentile authority. Uh, the Zealots had not been around for a very long time, and it was more of a political than than theological um, movement, we could say. Yeah. But certainly, it would have theological purposes for yeah. for undertaking that that course of action. Um, essentially, a violent response. Mm-hmm. Maybe not always violent, but the willingness to be uh, yeah, to, to use defend. violence, worldly means for yeah. um, for pushing back against Gentile authority. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what their theological positions were be would be if they had anything any that were particularly distinctive. Uh, my guess is that they were sort of just traditional Jews who really wanted to see uh, their their land restored to independence, and so they probably were would have been very influenced by the example of the Maccabean revolt, and were wanting to see something of that same nature take place in their own time and so they were zealous for their sort of political religious identity mm-hmm. as a people cultural too, and I'm so sure, yeah. then yeah. this this brings us finally to our final group of uh, the time period known today as the Essenes known back then as the Essenes as well mm-hmm. don't know why I said that uh, <laughs> but this group is is unique uh, the Essenes were known pretty well for uh, sort of uh, pulling away from engaging with with the culture of their day. In some ways, we may think of them as proto Anabaptists, who or Amish, or the yeah. Amish. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's a more popular way of putting it. Uh, who who generally uh, went their own way, kind of pulled apart from the rest of their people, and they were also known for being quite mystical and for uh, and for having beliefs that were kind of more pietistic, we might mm-hmm. say. Then they practice baptism as well. That's, that's yeah, something like that's they find baptistries in Essene communities. That's right. Yeah. And so that baptism then, of course, plays a very important role by the time of, of Christ and of John the Baptist. Uh, these, these were, you could say, rituals that were already taking place mm-hmm. that were picked up in the New Testament. And you might even say baptism was baptized by Christ. It was given <laughs> yeah. a new new meaning <clears throat> by well, the time of Christ. And baptism makes a lot of sense for somebody withdrawing to cleanse <laughs> yourself from the world, yeah. uh, to enter into this community. Um you know, there's a the ritual to do hmm. that would be uh, would to be to go through baptism. The the Essenes are are also very important in biblical history for yep. their production of what are now known as the yep. Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they live out in in the the wilderness in the hinterlands around Israel. Caves. And they 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 hide in caves. They live in caves. They store their stuff in caves. And hmm. that included um, many jars of of sacred texts. And so part of the reason that we have the many of the manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament are from these Essene people who withdrew from the cities, the towns, to go form their own communities out in, in the hills. Yeah, so this is an interesting people group. And in some ways, we can sort of see then uh, the different, you could say, shadows or, or mm-hmm. foreshadowings of different uh, poli- or religious sort of groups today. It's interesting to see that. Not to say that they're all exactly the same, that the Pharisees are your legalistic evangelicals or your Sadducees are your mainline mm-hmm. progressive Christians, but there are some similarities, and it's it's helpful in sort of learning these groups by comparing them to our own day just a little bit so that you can keep them in mind. Mm-hmm. And so even in this time period, there were different uh, understandings amongst Jewish people about how they ought to relate, how they 
how they ought to relate to government, how they should then be faithful to the Lord in their own time period. Uh, this was a time of political and religious turmoil. There were, there were difficulties that the Jews were facing. And so in all of this, we can think just sort of broadly from the time of Cyrus up to the time of Christ, that the Jews were in a time of, of longing. They were mm-hmm. in a time of very much looking forward to the promises of, of the prophets being fulfilled, uh, to God being faithful to his promises that he had spoken uh, when he would restore his people. And so they had different understandings of how this would happen, and nobody really quite understood that it would happen the way it did in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we think about the Advent season more broadly, and we, as we, and we can think as we reflect on that through the intertestamental period, there was a, a deep tone of longing. This is obviously picked up in some of the great Advent hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where we reflect on the peoples uh, being pushed aside. They were oppressed by different rulers uh, who, in some ways, made their religious life and their piety very difficult and strained. And so when we think about Advent, we are largely putting ourselves back in their shoes and and Mm -hmm. thinking about how we today struggle even with our world as it is. And we long for the return of Christ to make all things new and to set all things right. All these people needed Jesus teaching, my kingdom is not of this world. And each of these groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Hmm. Zealots, and Essenes would have been... uh, corrected in some way by Jesus' proclamation that, that his kingdom is is uh, supernatural. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, we can mean that in, in the fullest sense, um, not just that it was amazing, but that it was even um, above an, an earthly realm. And so hmm. uh, I, I can't help but think as we describe all this that politics do really matter, and politics really influence theology. And even still, we live in a day where politics continue to matter a lot. Hmm. And um, the question that we would have is, are, are, we, are we turning to Christ, or are we getting maybe um, a, a little bit wrapped up in any of these responses to the political intrigues of the day? Hmm. Um, I think that that can often be a distraction from devotion to Christ and, and simple Christian living, um, as, as the Apostle Paul wrote, you know, live, live quietly, work hard. And, um, and, and follow Jesus. Uh, I hmm. think that uh, it, it can be a temptation to, to fill in, fill, put ourselves in the shoes of the zealots or the Essenes or the, the Pharisees, uh, thinking that anything other than Christ himself is, is going to be the one who brings um, restoration, salvation, wholeness to uh, hmm. a church or a, a town or a nation or even the world. Yeah, and that's exactly what the Advent season is then all about. It's about focusing on the return of Christ and how in that, in his return, all things will be made right. Not in any sort of interim political scheme that we try to come up with between now and then. Uh, I think Christians very very often do get caught up in thinking quite a lot like that, uh, where they think that if, if only something can happen, the right political person mm-hmm. can be put in power, or the right system can be enacted, or the right jaws can be jaws laws can be <laughs> put into place, uh, then think all things will be right. Yeah. Advent reminds us that no, 
not all things will be right until the end when things will be restored when every tear will be wiped away when judgment will will come down and with it justice Mm -hmm. and things will be all new yeah and uh until then we strive and labor for um we serve christ and love our neighbor and we engage Hmm. in the political process but i think always um with with that perspective so so thanks for listening and for uh, sticking with us for a little bit more of an educational <laughs> yeah. uh, episode here. But a history lesson. Um, well, but at the same time, uh, I, we don't apologize because this isn't just the same old history that you've probably heard a thousand right. times. Um, but this is, is hopefully helpful history that will inform your celebration of Advent and uh, your understanding of God's Word. Amen so, to that. So thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, as we often remind you, it's great if you can uh, like hmm. and subscribe and share the podcast. Um, hopefully this yeah. is a blessing not just to you, but you can spread the blessing to other people that you know, um, that they could grow in their understanding of God's Word and their their trust in Christ as well. Yeah, so we'll be, we'll be back next week with our episode on Hanukkah, which maybe surprises some of you. Yep. And so you'll have to just, you'll just have to wait until yep. we get to it. And until then, <laughs> grace and peace, you guys. All right, bye.